1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Matifile, where I had the pleasure of talking with the analyst, academic, and translator Mr. Shintaro Hara, on the insurgency in the deep south of Thailand. The deep south of Thailand, or the Thai border with Malaysia, is something I've been wanting to talk about ever since I did the episodes on the history and politics of Thailand. It's an insurgency that gets much less coverage than it's actually due, because there is a population of disenfranchised Malay Muslims Who occupy the area that is currently under political Thailand? It's an area that's been long neglected, and our conversation talks about why developmental strategies implemented by an unstable government in Thailand are oftentimes incredibly ineffective at addressing people's grievances from the region itself. The Patani region is one of the poorest regions in Thailand and we talk about the kinds of reform that are necessary to help the region recover, its cultural practices be acknowledged at a national level and why the right to self-determination is incredibly important to most people in the area. Further, we talk on why liberation movements such as the BRN are oftentimes ineffective conduits for addressing and are quite ineffective even as proxies for general grievances expressed by most people in the Patani region. I also should preemptively apologize because the sound quality in certain segments of this interview is quite bad, owing to poor internet connectivity on my end. Here's my conversation with Mr. Hara. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matterfile, where today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Shintaro Hara, who is a scholar and a translator who's living in the Patani region of Thailand today and works on the Deep South insurgency in Thailand. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir.
0: Welcome, and nice to see
1: you. you. I think the place I want to start with is the history of the insurgency. So who are the Patani Malay Muslims? What is their historic background? And why is there an insurgency uh-huh. in the deep south of Thailand today?
0: Okay, um, it's a very big question. So now let me start uh, from the uh, kind of historical background here. This region was southernmost part of Thailand. It used to have um, a Malay kingdom, and the status of it is um, not very clear. Uh, whether or not this was an independent sovereign uh, country or not. Because um, this country, of course, has a, uh, their own uh, ruler, which is called Raja, right? Uh, but at the same time, they also send tribute uh, to the uh, Ayutthaya kingdom. So this is why the uh, Thailand or the Siam, Siam, uh, Siam kingdom, claim that this region has been their own uh, land. But for Malays, this is something unacceptable. Because they regard this kingdom as an independent kingdom, and invaded by Siamese, and finally annexed and also colonized by them. So, um, as a background, there are two uh, two different uh, way of seeing uh, this region. From Thai point of view, this has been a part of Thailand from the uh, long past. But for Malays, this is their own land, which used to be an um, independent kingdom, which was uh, annexed and also colonized without any consent from the local people. So, uh, this is, so to say, a kind of a historical background. And then um, this uh, part of the uh, world uh, was invaded by uh, Siamese in uh, 1785, um, around <clears throat> more than 200 years ago. And then uh, since then, it was almost officially under the uh, control of Thai. But at that time, um, this region still kept some kind of a high level of autonomy. So even the uh, rulers must uh, be uh, acknowledged by Thai, but they still have their own uh, uh, regional ruler. But after uh, the uh, Bangkok Treaty 1909, the borders between these two countries are demarcated. And since then, uh, this part has been uh, officially annexed into, uh, into Thailand or the Kingdom of Siam at the time. From uh, the local uh, Malay Muslims' point of view, uh, this arrangement was done between two colonizers. One is a Thai and the other one is a British. Right? So to say, the starting point of the uh, Thai governance in this region is uh, conducted without any assent from the local people. So this is why the uh, viewpoint to see this part of Thailand as a colonized uh, region still remains to this day. So this is a kind of a ideological back- background. So after this uh, part of uh, land was uh, formally annexed into Thailand in the uh, early 20th century, uh, the local people continued to uh, struggle to fight against. Thai dominance or Thai governance uh, and they demanded a high uh, autonomy their struggle has been had been uh, unsuccessful and in some occasions almost brutally suppressed especially uh, there is one uh, important figure uh, who is called Haji Sulon. he was a uh, religious leader in this region and also uh, politically participated in the movement of the people so he submitted uh, Uh, what is called as a a seven demands for uh, high autonomy. And uh, since then, what happened to him was that he was charged and he was imprisoned. And after release, he was abducted. This happened in uh, 1954, so he disappeared since then. And then this could be one of the reasons that uh, drove the struggle of the Patani people into the uh, underground. And another thing is that uh, so since then, uh, in uh, 1960s, the armed group began to be formed. So uh, there are several groups which still remain to this day, like RM uh, Barisan Devolution National, or National Liber- Revolutionary Front, or URO, Patani United Liberation Organization also BIPP, Barisan Islam from the Western National, Atani uh, Islamic Liberation Fronts, and so on. All of them are formed in this era in the uh, 1960s. And uh, what is more important is that uh, some of the uh, those, uh, founding fathers of these uh, organizations used to be uh, member of parliament in this region. For instance, uh, one of the founding fathers of BRN is called Haji Amin. Uh, Haji Amin uh, is a son of Haji Sulu, uh, that disappeared, you know, uh, uh, disappeared with the uh, Muslim leaders in this region. And he ran for the election and he won almost one strike victory. And then he became an MP from this region. And he tried to broke the issue of this region, which had been uh, quite unsuccessful. And he was so disappointed and he was, so to say, threatened by the authority. And finally, he went to Malaysia and became uh, one of the founding members of the PR. And another example is uh, another man who was son of the last Raja of the Saiburi district. And he also ran for the MP and also he won from Narakura province. So one or two times, I think he won the election. And he tried to bring the issue uh, more actively uh, to the central government. And he sent letters uh, to the prime minister and then prime minister of Thailand and so on. And uh, in order to bring the issue of the South to the central government, uh, which was never been was it, properly dealt with and uh, this disappointment also uh, drove him to Malaysia and he uh, also established his own uh, organization which uh, still exists to this day. So uh, these are the uh, historical background that uh, at first, uh, Patani people tried to fight against the state by using the uh, democratic method or political method. But all the struggle uh, came into a um, blind alley, or well, there was no way out. Each door, uh, many uh, local leaders, religious leaders, intellectuals, uh, and so on, and drove all these, those peoples from Malaysia, yeah. they formed their own uh, front or their the organization in order to fight against the state. And then it was also the starting point of the uh, armed struggle, which still continues to exist. So you
1: mentioned that this was the start of the armed struggle of the Patani Malay Muslims. My question then is, um, if all these leaders fled to Malaysia, did the Malaysian government or the Malaysian parliament actively try persuading Thailand to allow this region more political power or to secede to Malaysia or to form its own independent region?
0: This is a very uh, delicate matter. And uh, Malaysia also has a kind of uh, ambivalence uh, which they have to face. So first, uh, it has to keep a good uh, relationship with Thailand, especially uh, as a member of the ASEAN. And also uh, in the past, these two countries uh, cooperate together in order to suppress the communists, which uh, crosses the uh, border quite freely, right? But at the same time, it is also difficult, or even almost very sensitive, for the Malaysian government to push them back to Thailand, uh, so to say, to arrest them, because um, in Malaysia. There are quite a few people whose uh, ancestors are from Patani, especially in the states like Lampang, Pera, Kutah, and so on. In these states, there are quite a few people whose um, ancestors are from Patani region. Although the Malaysian government has never been supporting uh, these activities in a very blatant, you know, so to say, blatant, um, very overt way, but at the same time, they allow them all turning blind eyes for these people staying here as long as they do not break the Malaysian rule. So for instance, if they try, for instance, if they try to make some connection with the Jamia uh, Islamia or ISIS, or some groups which are regarded as a global terrorist, and then at that time, I'm sure that they, they will be good or they will have no chance anymore in Malaysia, right? So they, both sides have to be very careful in order to keep, so to say, status quo of the uh, circumstances, so uh, for me, it's still impossible for Malaysia to suppress these people. But at the same time, for the uh, insurgent, also for the insurgent, it's also very difficult for them to actively uh, operate in this region uh, without violating the uh, Malaysian law. The
1: question then is, when did this struggle become armed? So you said that up until, say, the 1960s and the 1970s, the struggle was largely not an armed struggle people were trying to access legitimate means of venting their grievances to the thai government what drove these mm-hmm. parties to then take up armed struggle and an armed conflict and then be termed an insurgency
0: okay so in this case actually the uh, armed struggle began in the 1960s right but at the same time they uh, there are some uh there are some struggles on the ground as well it doesn't mean that it was a struggle suddenly coming to the ground so uh, some parts of the struggle Going to the uh, underground, and uh, they the some uh, armed struggle. But at the same time, there are a struggle on the surface as well. Like the example of the very uh, big demonstration, which has been uh, hugely neglected in the Thai history. But there was a very big demonstration in uh, 1975 in Patani, and at, the, uh, at one, uh, some peaks, it was joined by a hundred, uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And this is a very huge number because the entire population of Patani at that time is probably more than uh, just about uh, one million. So this was a really huge political movement, and this kind of movement continued almost to this day. So, for instance, <laughs> you know, I think it was yesterday there was a, a demonstration against the military government in Ghana Province, which was organized by the youth. So this uh, even if there is a military struggle, it doesn't mean that the struggle on the surface will stop, So they also try to, ordinary people, so to say, try to struggle or try to channel is a problem by using several ways. So in my understanding, the armed uh, under struggle or underground struggle is just one of the ways. And also it could be the main way, but as well, uh, at the same time, we cannot discard the existence this uh, legal or democratic struggle on the surface.
1: So in the Pitani provinces today, do they still mm-hmm. have a seat in parliament or are they not represented in the political sphere at all today? Are, is there still an elected seat given to these mm-hmm. Pitani districts or not?
0: Yeah. So I mean, it's depending on the, uh, how the uh, central government can open to them. And in the past, there was a very huge uh, group called Wadah Group, which is a group over local Muslim Malay politicians. Which is quite influential, and then after that, uh, at one time, they become very weak and uh, replaced by some other political parties. And then now they are dis- serviced again in the name of another party, which is for the Pracha Chat party. So, in this case, uh, it's also depending on the uh, extent of democracy in Thailand as well. So, as you know, Thailand has so many coups d'etat, right? and the constitutions are often discarded and also the uh, uh, parliament is also disbanded and so on. So uh, we just had the latest election in 2018, so it was just very new. Because that, almost (laughs) three to four years, I think, we had no uh, election whatsoever. And when this kind of uh, political space opens up, the Patani Malays, especially people from Patani, this region has three provinces, right? Patani, Lana, and Nanakiwara. And uh, Old uh, people from all these provinces are ready to seize political, uh, political opportunities in order to send their representatives in the, the parliament.
1: What does the 2019 election then mean for the province, for these three provinces? What does Prayuth Channu Cha want with the people in these provinces? How does he plan on dealing with the insurgency in the deep south?
0: In terms of the election, there was a kind of kind of a split result. So. Uh, Some uh, constitutions are won by pro-government or pro junta candidates, but uh, I think it's more than half of the constitutions are won by the officials. But in terms of what uh, the current prime minister wants to do with this region is very significant in the sense that he has changed the name of the peace process. The change happened in the name of uh, in the Thai name. It used to be called as a peace process. So in Thai, it is called the Karabonkan Santipa. So here, the word Santipa means peace, literally peace. And then he changed the, this word Santipa into Santisu, which means domestic happiness, you see. So it is quite clear for the current government to regard this as a totally internal problem. And the impossible they want to solve this problem is an interference from foreign actors.
1: And how do the multiple groups in the region feel about this change in rhetoric from the government? Because presumably there are small guerrilla groups that are leading an armed and a violent struggle, and then there's right. larger groups that are non-violent in nature as well. So how do different groups feel about this change of rhetoric from Prayut's government?
0: In this case, I, mean, I would like to stress that at this moment, um, of course, there are some several groups, but at the same time, there are some misunderstanding here. So for instance, um, the a term which may, uh, if you read something written on this reading, you may come into the term RKK, right? So RKK is not an organization. This is a, a smallest uh, military cell of BRN. And BRN itself has a political section as well as a military section. So uh, I wouldn't say they are kind of a monolithic, but at the same time, it's quite wrong to see that this as a kind of a disorganized fraction, but in, uh, in actuality, in my opinion, it's quite organized. And recently it has been proved after the uh, outbreak of COVID-19, the BRN uh, from, from one YouTube clip announced uh, one uh, unilateral ceasefire. And this has been effective almost to this day over the conflict area, almost completely. Of course, there are some uh, skirmishes and also some retaliations. It's not completely stopped. But in comparison to the previous uh, time, the effect of the ceasefire announcement has been almost tremendous. It's almost incredible. So, um, this, in my opinion, indicates that this is not done by the collection of the small groups. Some people say that this is a network of small groups, and also the uh, effectiveness of the uh, announced ceasefire is one of the uh, clear evidence to indicate that these armed groups also working under the strong coordination of a big organization. I could be wrong because they are basically underground organization. (laughs) This is my understanding.
1: Okay, and if that is true, then. Surely the Mm -hmm. peace process becomes easier because you have a large political faction of the BRN with which the Thai government would probably be holding peace talks with. Has the creation Mm -hmm. of a political entity or a large body that has organized Patani grievances in the South made the peace process easier or made it more (laughs) difficult?
0: Okay, so as you said, if, if really BRN can be a political representative of the Patani people, it must be very easy for them to voice up the issues. And also, the peace process must go uh, very smoothly, right? But the problem is that kind of a, BRN is a kind of a organization which is using a remote control in Malaysia. So it's not like an organization which has their own territory and the people on the ground. And also, they can struggle on their own ground. But in case of Patani, the difficulty is that most of the readers live in deep abroad, Most of them in Malaysia, and some of them might be in Sweden or maybe some other countries. Uh, we have no idea. But um, surely they are not in Thailand. So, this is another problem to what extent they can be a political representative of the local people. And uh, this is a kind of a challenge also for the PRM, in order to consolidate this aspect. In my opinion, so far, BRM has been successful, or at least they have been effective in the military struggle since uh, 2004, when the uh, recent um, wave of the violence erupted. But uh, on the other hand, since that time to this day, the political struggle has been very slow or very ineffective. So, for this reason, I wanted to find, so to say, a sustainable solution for this conflict, I suppose and I believe that. The political, so to say, uh, political empowerment of the BRN is a kind of a necessary condition.
1: I want to move slightly more towards the actual region and what is going on on ground in the Patani region because you, of course, live in the Patani region and you mentioned that there is a disconnect between the people on ground and the people in Malaysia that hold power. Yes, On ground, Uh what is the economic situation of the Patani region like today? Is it economically much worse off than other regions in thailand if so Mm -hmm. why is this impoverishment there and what is being done to solve it
0: it's a very difficult question because it could be answered in many ways so first we cannot uh, uh, dismiss the uh, impact of the covid right so of course you know uh, it's not only here but all over the country all over the world (laughs) i I would say the economic situation has been uh, quite bad but at the same time I also conducted some interviews from the uh, civil society members and also the uh, local merchant and so on. And most of them agreed that the impact on this region is not as big as other parts of the country, except certain regions, which has been largely dependent on the uh, border ways, like you know, the border cities with Malaysia and can be affected. But if you come, come into this region, Province, which doesn't border with Malaysia, you can see that actually economic is, and I cannot, you know, I cannot present you the uh, uh, actual figure, but many people have a feeling that the economic activity has been more active. <coughs> and uh, many people try to seize the uh, opportunity for uh, waging on some, something new. So here, ironically, after the COVID, almost all other parts of the country has been affected but in this region, it has a counter effect, so to say something different happened because after the ceasefire, many people mentioned that regional uh, tourism has been developing. So there are many places which, uh, which had been um, unaccessible, now become accessible, and the people are ready to go there, going for camping, doing things and buying things and, you know, and so on mainly these areas located in the forest or in mountainous regions and so on, remote areas, where people used to fear to access because they are afraid of the incidents. But because of the ceasefire, now people can, uh, so to say, make a um, good plan and they have, um, they have to go certain places which they used to be afraid of. So uh, there are kind of a, of course, you know, I wouldn't deny that this is affected by the COVID and those are some other things. And also uh, in general, this region has a very low income as well, but at the same time, I wouldn't say this is because of COVID, but there's a kind of a positive impact from that as well. But uh, in general picture, this region has been regarded as one of the poorest regions in the region. Uh, Sorry, poorest region in the country. And uh, the government tried to so put a large amount of uh, budget for the, uh, so to say, development, uh, but the development is not something, some development has been brought about in a way, which is not necessarily in accordance with the local, what the local people want. So recently the government is trying to open up an industrial area in the Chana district from Songkhla province, which is still part of the uh, conflict region. And they try to host, you know, to chase away the local people and open up a huge industrial area. And now there are people who are supporting, who can you know, get some benefits from the, uh, this project. But uh, according to my observation, most of the local people are against that because they are going to lose. So uh, this is an example that it's always, it's, even the development, brought by the government can be the reasons of the conflict as well. So this is a, in, this, uh, in this aspect, the government has not, hasn't been careful enough in order to deal with this sensitive issue.
1: This is all new news to me because I haven't read about, about any of this online because I read that the government is trying to provide development aid to Batani regions and regions in the that, south, but that aid is yes. not being effective. And I think you explained it really well as to why that aid is not being effective and why those funds are not actually helping local populations on ground. I think the second yeah. question out of this then is, if this is one of the poorest regions in Thailand, how mm-hmm. are the insurgency groups like the BRN actually getting mm-hmm. money? Where do they get the money from? <laughs> how do they generate funds for their activities?
0: Okay, so this is a very good question. And also this has been a big uh, mystery for them, mystery for the researchers as well. So uh, in the past, we know that they um, gather the one baht per day from the members. But uh, as far as I, I, I guess, been abolished. So uh, at this moment, we have, I have no idea how they uh, try to raise money through the struggle. But at the same time, I also have to agree with the very fact that their struggle is a very kind of a economic. So uh, they, use a, they have never used, so to say, military uh, vehicles, and also they do not have a regular army. Or even if they have a regular army, the number is very extremely small, right? Unlike in the past. So now the strategy seems like right. they try to sustain their own struggle but in a low-cost way, as low as possible. So This is my understanding. But at the same time, where the money comes from is another good question. And also in this aspect, I, I suppose that one of these holes must be uh, the money they can earn from Malaysia. And also there could be some uh, money collection from here in the region. So, uh, and also for your information, In this region, although the GDP itself is very low, there are hundreds of thousands of people going to Malaysia in order to work in restaurants. So the accurate number is not known because um, uh, quite a few of them go to to Malaysia quite legally actually, and only uh, some portion of them are registered as a migrant labor, And uh, most of them are uh, kind of legal laborer. And uh, they also generate some, some amount of money which is not uh, documented in any, any kind of the economic statistics in time. So uh, there are some kind of a unknown parts in terms of the economy in this region. And also there are some, uh, some people say that uh, they get money from the uh, illegal businesses or the uh, drug drinks. But as far as I know, this is kind of unlikely. I wouldn't deny the very fact that some members are involved in this kind of illegal business, but it's not them in the organi- uh, organization way. Because um, basically, you have to know the local influential people who are local mafias in order to know the conduct these. And uh, in some cases, like in the, some border areas, illegal, you know, the uh, illegal uh, petrol imported uh, smuggled from Malaysia, openly sold. So if this is the money, you know, the uh, financial resource for the insurgent, it's impossible for them to sell in this way. Uh, all I know, I, I, I'm, I'm very sorry that I can answer your question directly because I'm afraid that no one can answer in a very precise way, except those who are in charge of the uh, financial affairs of the, these insurgents. Uh, but what I, I might say is that uh, they still uh, try to keep their struggle as, uh, you know, so to say, not costly, as uh, cheap as possible. And uh, for this reason, they expanded. Uh, their own uh, kind of regular, regular army, which they used to have in the 80s and 90s, but they are, at this moment, I'm quite sure, Number is very good, and uh, now they use the strategies of the uh, terrorism or by using violence in the cities and also in the roadside, rather than encountering in the forests or in the mountainous regions.
1: That's interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned the drug trade and the the implication that people think that they might be involved in illegal activities and illegal smuggling. Because yep. from what I've read, even the government, the previous government before Prayuth, thought that the yep. Deep South was responsible for a lot of illegal trade and a lot of illegal drug trafficking across the border. How has yep. the Thai government's war on drugs affected Patani populations and has the military presence increased mm-hmm. since the war on drugs and has that made it harder to achieve peace in the
0: region? In my observation, the drug problems and also insurgency is a totally different, different matter, which is, has some, some kind of connection, but it's basically it's a different, different sources, different reasons, and also for different actors. So uh, in, this, uh, in this aspect, of course, you know, in this region, there are so many uh, smuggling. Uh, this is very true. For instance, smuggling the uh, petrol from Malaysia, and also smuggling the cigarettes from Indonesia, because in this region, the Indonesian cigarette is popular. Uh, but at the same time, it's also interesting that in this region, there are hardly any human trafficking, unlike the opposite side of the border. So this is the east coast of Thailand, right? Where most of the um, human trafficking, like the Rohingyas and so on, happened in the west side. So um, this is another indicator, the ind- indication that who are involved in the, this kind of human trafficking. I wouldn't say who, I wouldn't point out who, who it is. But in the area where the state control cannot fully reach, there has been very small well, hardly any human trafficking. But the uh, illegal business are conducted in some other things, like uh, goods, rice, cigarettes, petrol, and so forth. Okay.
1: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I want to shift slightly away from this and talk a bit about the relationship of the people of this region and the military of Thailand, because obviously the military is a big player in the peace process of the Deep South and the Deep South insurgency. What are Mm -hmm. the military's attitudes towards Malay Muslim people in the South? Are they generally Mm -hmm. aggressive or do they want to try talking out to a peaceful resolution?
0: So I must say the, uh, the, the uh, relationship between the state authority or state security, of course, with local people has never been good. If you look at any book written uh, by the uh, observers, you will never find any things except uh, government propaganda which say we have established uh, kind of or good relationship with each other. But in, in fact, it has never been good. So I wouldn't, uh, it is in the past, it's not the army, but it was rather like the police office, uh, police which was feared uh, by the local people. And recently, it changed into the military, right? But basically, these, uh, the local people see them as the security forces. So uh, basically, there is no difference because they are for the security and also from the state, right? So in the past, it was mainly the police. The reason is very simple because, especially, especially since the 2004, the situation has been even worse in my opinion, because they are now using two special rules. One is called the martial law, and second is called the emergency decree. Emergency decree has become uh, quite popular uh, for those who are closing in Thailand because the central government is now using this decree in order to control the situation or uh, to put it very frankly, to control or to to deter the uh, student demonstrations. But in the south, these two laws have been used for more than four, uh, 15 years, almost from the beginning of the uh, insurgency in 2004. And the problem is that, under this, uh, so to say, draconian uh, special laws, the security forces can detain anybody without any warrant for seven days. Actually, this is according to the martial law, right? And uh, detention can be done anywhere for seven days. And this can be extended by the emergency decree for another three days. So uh, put it very simply, uh, local people, totally innocent people, it could be, can be arrested only because they are a suspect for thirty-seven days without any warrant. Actually, uh, for the emergency decree, a warrant, uh, warrant is needed. But the usual procedure is somebody is arrested or detained based on the emergency, uh, sorry, uh, martial law, and detained for seven days. And during these seven days, the authority prepared the arrest warrant for this guy in order to extend his detention based on the emergency decree. And uh, until this day, allegations of torture has been has never been stopped. And uh, if you uh, worked with uh, human rights lawyers or human rights organizations in this region, there is nobody who can deny the existence of torture done by the military forces. And also there are several, as far as I know, one un- unnatural deaths which happened during the detention. So for this reason, uh, it's I think it's quite natural for the local people to regard the security force of the state as a, as a threat, rather than the, uh, their protector or a guardian. Okay,
1: that's really worrying. Um, now my question is to do with, what do the Patani people actually want? Like there is clearly mm-hmm. unrest, they clearly, do not like the way the Thai state has been treating them, what do they want? Mm-hmm. Do they just want simple recognition? So do they want the Patani language to be recognized in Thailand and more political inclusion or do they want a separate state and some degree of autonomy for that region?
0: So this could be very from one person to another. So for the uh, most extreme guys, Patani must be independent. But for some people are very happy with the Thai state and also because, because they are part of distant state, and they can be rich, they can be poor, and they can be anything. So some people don't want to have any change. But in general, I might say, um, not many people are very happy with the current situation, just like in uh, as the other part of the Thailand, that you know, um, they need some kind of justice. So in my opinion, this could be wrapped into just one or two words. It could be right to self-determination. So right to self-determination could be just having an uh, elected mayor, or partial autonomy, or high autonomy, or even independence, right? So it's on, on the line of the self-determination, but the degree of what they want could be different, right? So some people just want um, they, some people can can accept nothing but uh, independence, but for some people, high autonomy is good enough. For some people, just decentralization or devolution, or even just you the status quo. So it could be different, but the recognition of the uh, so to say the identity is. Uh, Part of that. So, in my opinion, the recognition of the uh, first is that in Thailand, in the uh, identification card, the nationality is Thai, and ethnicity for everybody is Thai. Which is, in my opinion, this is not academic. Academically speaking, this is unacceptable because this uh, Thailand. Thailand has uh, lots of ethnicity, right? Like Chinese and those few tribes and Malays and so on. For instance, I get married with a Thai, uh, Malay Muslim here, and she is Malay, and I'm Japanese, and uh, my children on the birth certificate, the ethnicity is tight. It's impossible. My son said, my, my children has no type that, actually. It's Malay and Japanese, right? In this case, the state itself is too nationalistic to allow, so to say, genuine diversity. And uh, this kind of stiffness might drive some people become, to become more, uh, so to say, radical. So in this case, in my opinion, the Thai government should be more open to the diversity and also the recognition and so on. Otherwise, my my uh, my concern is that this state policy might push more people to the extent of the independence or high autonomy or anything like this, other than the, uh, they are capable of doing any kind of uh, reconciliation or compromise. So under the kind situation, it's very really highly risky and those, in my opinion, it's quite uncomfortable for the Thai state to using the iron crystal approach. So at least it's uh, compared to 10 years or maybe 15 years ago, the situation has been improving because now at least, even there there has been almost no progress, but we still have the flame of the peace talk, right? And uh, in my opinion, the Thai government shouldn't discard this fragile flame. They have to keep at whatever the cost is. And also they have to uh, concentrate on this and also uh, make some kind of a significant uh, improvement in the situation by using this claim. Otherwise, I'm afraid that the local people might be more radicalized than now.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. from the sounds of this, it sounds like the Thai government since the 1960s and 70s has been pushing a policy of Thaification, which is unifying Thailand under ethnicity and religious terms. And that has systemically denied people in the south of Thailand an access to their own independent ethnicity or their own independent identity as a separate people. And that is making people increasingly angry. But this problem hasn't been a new problem. It's been a problem for the past 50 or 60 years. Why has no international human rights organization noticed this or done anything about this? What is the role of organizations such as the UN Human Rights Watch in helping solve this problem in the Deep South?
0: That's a very good question. And also, um, this is a kind of, a wouldn't, I I cannot say this is a positive thing, but at least this is something we get after this uh, area is covered by the media and also attract international attention. Otherwise, this, could, this region could be swallowed by the typification uh, or cyanization or uh, assimilation whatsoever. And uh, after the, uh, you know, there has been so many uh, the uh, so at first, it's more like, you know, the uh, people are interested in the cessation of the violence, but now people begin to observe more closely and more, so to say, more in the overall picture to see the problem, and they begin to notice that it actually has something to do with the uh, old with the stories. And uh, as I said before, this uh, incident or this uh, human rights problems doesn't happen just in uh, 10 or uh, 15 years ago, but it has been like this for a very long time. And basically, this uh, the issue or the problems with this region has never been fully solved by the state's side. Of course, compared to the past, um, there are some improvements but there are still so many things which must be done.
1: And in your opinion then what yeah. is the future for this deep south of Thailand? Do you think that there is a peaceful resolution that is going to come soon because the current ceasefire or do you think the conflict is going to stretch out over another 10 or 20 years? What do you think is going to
0: happen now? It could be in both way or it could be in a different way as well. So this in terms of the future there is no it's very difficult, it's, in, in my opinion, the uh, prediction of the, uh, this region is far more difficult than the uh, predicting the uh, results of, the, of the <laughs> 10 years later. So everything can happen. But uh, in my opinion, the Thai state at least begin to learn something. So they are not as harsh as before. And also the Thai state, so to say, so to say, I wouldn't say they're good, but at least so to say, more lenient compared to some other governments in this region. So they are still capable of talking all, talking with uh, insurgents, still capable of uh, adapting their policies and so on. So for instance, in the past they are careless enough to meddle with the Islamic things or religious issues. And then the people could unite together, fight against the uh, anti-Islamic government. And at the time the Thai government was anti islamic But at this moment I must say Thai government has not being hostile to the region itself. So this is a kind of government which is capable of changing, right? And also, uh, depending on the, uh, to what extent, so uh, even this uh, region is a very unique, but at the same time, this is part of Thailand. So uh, if you look at the uh, history of this region, you can see clear link between what's going on in the center and what's going on in this region as well. So for instance, if the Thailand become more nationalistic, more you know, military oriented, and more like, say, more like Burma or Myanmar, and then in that case, the conflict will never, never stop. But if the Thailand genuinely can become a democratic and respect uh, human rights and uh, acknowledgement of diversity and so on, in that case, the uh, conditions which enable the conflict itself also can be reduced or even can be solved. So, it's depending on so many things, but the, one of the main factors is uh, what Thai government could be in the, in the future. So the, in my opinion, the, uh, the future condition hugely depending on this as well, And also are the uh, many people as well. But the, mainly this is still part of the highly centralized company called Thailand. So I'm sure that uh, any solution, any feasible solution cannot happen per se in this region, but it has something very strong connection with what's going on in the center. And
1: how important is a stable central government in helping resolve this conflict? Because the Thai government, as you've also mentioned, has been yeah. overthrown several times by several different coup d'etats, and there are protests mm-hmm. going on currently as well. How important mm-hmm. is a stable center to coming towards a solution in the South?
0: Yeah. So in this respect, I mean, we have to be careful on, on, on two points. One is that the central government should be stable, and also, should, in my opinion, should be democratic. Right, So it's a, we need a very strong or stable uh, democratic government, which is not meddled by the interference of the military or some other extra judicial things, right? This is the first thing. But at the same time, the, the power is too centralized in Bangkok. It's amazing. Even Thailand is uh, centralized in almost everything, not only power, but also wealth, population and so on. Everything is in Bangkok, right? So um, it's depending on the two things. First is a strong government, strong, democratic government, or so to say stable government. But at the same time, this government should also be serious in terms of the decentralization. So they have to give up something given to the the region. For instance, the decision-making or the governance power, including the budgets as well. Now almost 70% of the entire budget is spending in Bangkok compared to the other region, so it's ridiculous. So, in my opinion, this is another, another crucial issue for the solution of the uh, conflict, which has been killed more than 7,000 7, people in, uh, in the last 16 years.
1: And just lastly, before I let you go, are there any media sources like books or news media sources that you can recommend to our listeners to help better understand the insurgency in the Deep South in Thailand and the conflict of the Deep South?
0: Um, unfortunately, uh, in uh, English, the uh, <clears throat> source is uh, very limited, but maybe you can follow certain websites like uh, Thai, the news agency called Bumar News, or uh, Thai English papers, like uh, especially the Bangkok Post and so on, although the uh, coverage is not very, not very wide enough or deep enough, but at least you can follow. And also, if you are interested in this region, what I can recommend is that uh, try to search from the net and also some other things, um, you can find quite a few articles which you can read free, uh, about this region. Actually, this region is a very interesting region. So, for, uh, and also, uh, things are, many things are written in three languages, in English, in Bahasa Manayu, Malay, and also in uh, Thai. So in my opinion, this is a very highly overstudied <laughs> region. So it's quite interesting, and you can find very different sources. But in terms of the uh, current development, it's still quite difficult. Uh, but um, try to follow this, uh, especially the uh, news. And also, if you read Thai, Isara uh, News Agency is another, another selection. Uh, but um, I'm very sorry to acknowledge that uh, at this moment, our uh, information uh, gateway is still quite limited.
1: Thank you so much mm-hmm. for joining us today, Shintaro. It's been incredible having you, and I've loved learning more about the Deep South insurgency and hopefully for the people on okay. ground. Development and a peaceful solution will come soon as a result of this ceasefire. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank
1: you very much. On another unrelated note, a friend of mine is working with this organization called Standpoint India. The organization is trying to build fora for better discourse on politics, economics, social justice and society. And they're running a course on public diplomacy and soft power along with the India Foundation. Deadline for registration of this course is the 11th of November and I encourage all of you to check it out because it looks rather interesting and might be a good start if you want to enter fields such as diplomacy and international relations. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Matterphile and I hope to see you next time. This has been about the Deep South in Thailand. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?